Good morning, listeners. It is Sunday morning here on Triple H 100.1 FM and you are listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy. Um, welcome. It's been, it feels like it's been a long time since Anzac Day on Tuesday, um, but here we are and uh, hopefully we have a jam-packed show for you today. This is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. This week's show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy is all about Anzac Day, really, um, and beyond about PTSD and the consequences of war and trauma on a human being. I hope that what we'll get out of it is not something that is depressing, but something that is uplifting, something that we can all do something about, the support that we can offer each other in our community. When we're at a place in the world's history where there have only been a handful of days where there has been no war in the world and there looks to be no end but actually an escalation in coming years, we have to ask ourselves what is the consequence on our psyches when we are this separated from living the love that is the foundation of our very existence. Mental health comes knocking at the door regardless of uniform, of job, status, race or creed. And... You know, this week and the last week in the lead up to Anzac Day, I've seen so many pictures of predominantly men standing with big smiles on their faces, their bodies laden with tools of the trade, stun grenades, bullets, guns of various speeds and level of power, protective shields, helmets, you know, body armour. These are people who've been taught that emotions have no place on the battlefield. And let's be honest, that has to be true. Imagine feeling things in a situation like that. The true horror of what you were being asked to do would be just too much. So I get that part of the training of being a soldier is to turn those emotions off. There have been a number of stories this week about what soldiers have seen and how they then had to come back and just fit into life back home we're still arguing about what people experience over there we're still attacking we're still defending we're still struggling really to support these tender people when they come home chris may who is only 27 spoke um, about his struggle of coming back of his of his struggle to survive of his really not wanting to be here, um, how irritated and, and angry he got about the trivial things that those of us who haven't been to war tr- you know, care about um, when such enormous things are going on on the other side of the world. That mismatch of understandings and values are really difficult to understand when settling back in. I'll put, that, uh, I'll put a link to that interview on the website when we get back. So what is Anzac Day and and why and how do we mark it? Anzac Day um, is the anniversary of the first military action fought by Australians and New Zealand forces during World War I. Anzac stands for Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. The soldiers in those forces quickly became known as Anzac and the pride they soon took in that name endures to this day. I thought that Hornsby and Kuringai, I think they mark it really well. Um, And, you know, there were so many people out again at this dawn service. Neil Ashworth, who is Street Beat, really. He runs Street Beat and has the show on the Friday. He does it every year. He organises a a group of, of us from Triple H to come together and to put on a live broadcast for the dawn service. I... I thank Neil from the oh, very depths of my body for um, asking me to be involved all of those years ago because 
it's made me realize um, just kind of what my um, what had gone on in my life and my grandfather's lives and what 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 my grandfather had tried to share with me and how painful I've always found war to be I've I've never idolized it I've never found it an easy I've really struggled to watch war movies um, I struggle to see the pain in uh, in those young boys faces and young young men's faces and uh, you know now when I look at the women you know they've hardened and they're they're more like men than women because they've had to turn off those emotions I really enjoyed watching the ABC drama about the nurses and found that it's it's really so important to show the other side of the people who perhaps weren't on the front line but were equally on the front line when you really consider that everything out there what you're seeing the 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 trauma of what you're seeing and how it affects you you know understanding all the different roles that people can play when they're out there beyond blue raised the awareness of this really quite well they talk about first-hand trauma but also second-hand trauma those who are exposed to the descriptions of what happened um, we've spoken about this on the show with children and young people and our responsibility in reporting the news. But again, mustn't forget the counsellors, the doctors, those who work on court cases, you know, have to listen to the trauma and the descriptions of what people have done, people who serve on, on jury duty. And journalists, journalists who report on all these horrors of man's inhumanity to man, things that we actually can change in a heartbeat should we choose to make that heartbeat beat stronger than the uh, than the head that's telling us something different i don't have any guests in the studio today but i hope that what you'll find on your airways as we go through this morning are the voices of the people um, that i've interviewed over this past week and um, hopefully some other interesting articles that i can share with you about that, that i've picked up in my research for this program so I will start off with some community service announcements and then we're going to um, hear from uh, a young man called Clancy. I'll tell you a little bit about him when we come back from the break. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Today we're talking about Anzac Day and um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Andy Cullen who uh, did an interview on 7.30, quotes some sobering figures. Since 1999, 49 soldiers have been killed in, on active duty. In contrast, over 300 veterans have taken their own lives since coming home over that same time frame, over 20 this year alone. So I just keep thinking, you know, we really have got to, we've really got to have this conversation. We've got to do... I don't know, we just can't keep looking the other way. I, I find it. I find that the more we look the other way, it doesn't make problems go away. It just makes them worse and more complicated to deal with in the end. Um, just, you know, that head in the sand thing doesn't really work. So I know I, ta I, know I tackle some fairly uh, tough topics on Stay in the Loop with Lucy, but I, I feel it's so important to stay in the loop with them so that we actually can support ourselves and support each other and have um, talk about things in a way that helps us let them go. So he has written a book um, called Resurrected with his wife and highlights the effect of PTSD on the whole family, which of course was the topic of my conversation a year ago with Lana and Dave Sturmer. I encourage you to listen to it again as it shows the ripple effect of war. It's not just about those who go to the battlefield, but about those they leave behind and come back to. So I spoke to Clancy uh, on Tuesday, who went to East Timor, Afghanistan and Iraq before finding his way out of the army and back into civilian life. He offers in this interview a snapshot of the challenges of coming back to civilian life and I I do hope that you will um, I don't think I think this interview could have gone on for so much longer but I'm aware that you know when I'm interviewing these people I'm interviewing them in the middle of a very busy um, bar in at the RSL um, where it's sometimes the first time these people have all been together these servicemen have all been together 
um, for a year. And this is the one opportunity they get to give each other support. So without further ado, you are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. Stay in the loop with Lucy. This is Clancy. So I'm here with Clancy now. Um, Clancy has served very recently in a lot of the recent wars that we've had. Clancy, could you tell me which ones you've been to? Uh, certainly. So I uh, did uh, multiple tours of East Timor, Afghanistan and Iraq um, over a 12-year career. Well, it, it's changed quite a lot, being a soldier um, now to when it was in the First or the Second World War. When you talk to veterans at events like this, how, how do you all... Is it all the same experience? It's actually, it has surprised me in the past. I found it, it is, like, it's the same. You're just all, you're all soldiers and he talked to some of the stories from Vietnam veterans or World War II veterans and the way they talk, the emotions, what's going running through your head, I suppose, the experience is the same. It's, um, it's, it's uncanny and it's great. I really enjoy that. I, yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to the old veterans, something I don't think I could have appreciated before having done so many deployments myself, I guess. That's one of the things I'm picking up is that actually I have never been, so I can never truly understand what you've been through. Whereas someone who has been, there is a shared experience, however many years apart, however many countries apart, there is, you go into combat and only someone who's been in combat can understand what that feels like. Yeah, certainly. I, I remember listening to a Vietnam veteran talk about waiting in a creek line and ambush um, for some VC to come through and as they uh, lay in ambush there and, and saw them coming and they were sort of all uh, giggling in anticipation and, um, you know, it was a real mirroring of experience there because you sort of think it was sombre and taken so seriously and you've got to understand it's almost like footy players lining up to play a game of footy because you're... You're, you know, you're indoctrinated into that that's what you're doing for your country and you're really, you're a bunch of boys together having a really good time a lot of the time in a very serious nature. It's, it's, it's hard to quantify, I think, for people who haven't experienced it. Um, but it, it's, whilst it's, it is a very serious and I suppose horrible thing, it's also, it's very hard to explain. Do you feel that it's a family for you, that you have all, that they're an extended part of your family? No, I don't, but it's there's something about talking to another soldier, whether you serve with them or they served prior to you or even born. Um, there's something there that I, you can't explain. There's a, like a connection you can never have with civilians or it's very hard to find. I, like at a barbecue, I sometimes find it quite awkward to speak to civilians, um, but I can come here to the RSL and a guy I never served with who served in a war I never went to and we can sit down and talk and there's uh, something there, you know. Once, once a soldier, always a soldier or something, I don't know. Are you still serving? No, I'm ex-serving. And how have you found coming out of... Was it the army you were in? Army. Yeah, how is it coming out of the army? Um, it was a huge transition. Um, yeah, it was... I think my time, it was my time to come out. Um, it's, it's been a massive change of life. I, I guess I... I've learned a lot since leaving. About yourself? No, about the civilian world, I suppose. <laughs> a lot of it's been about translating um, translating language, a lot of the, the principles. Um, I've moved into, uh, moved into business, so um, the principles are the same, but the language is different. So um, where we might say it's a... We might talk about a centre of gravity. Um, I can't think of... A good terminology, you know, risk versus reward or cost-benefit analysis. The, the military would have a very different terminology for it, but it would mean exactly the same thing. Yeah. How fascinating. What was the emotional support like when you came out? Uh, probably not great, I suppose. Um, I, I, you, you, you have to seek it out. It's there, you have to seek it out, that's all. And do you find that your family coped well with you coming back? From deployment or for leaving the army? Um, I think from from you leaving the army or when you were in the army. Just we hear so much about families, you know, that they send a young man away, and the person that comes back has experienced such such things that we could never imagine, or I hope never to imagine. That when they come back, they're slightly different. There's there's something changed in them. 
Yes, I think what you mean is, um, I suppose, over my career, I've done multiple deployments. So you go away, you come back, you're working, like in the Army, you go away, you come back, and there's exercises and courses. Um, and then leaving the Army is, is another beast entirely. Um, coming back from deployments is always a massive adjustment period. Um, I think it's hard. I think it's hard for everyone. Um, one thing for the family and or for me, for the wife, she's had the space to herself for a long time and she's developed her own way of living and then suddenly inject me into this and I've been living in a very alien environment so I'm trying to adjust and she's trying to adjust to having me in her space um, and often you, you, it takes quite a while just to adjust to being back in the real world as well as trying to reintegrate with your family so that can cause a lot of friction. I think that's probably very hard for a lot of veterans. Um, I know from myself on from the military end, you're, you're given some advice and some counselling around that and some educa education, but I don't know if that extends to the family. And I know in hindsight, looking back, there was times where what I was going, what was happening in my head and the way I was acting. When you look back on a hindsight, you go, "It's completely irrational." But at the time, I was very frustrated and couldn't understand why the real world was so so stupid or so different. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's something that perhaps, unless you've experienced it, people don't understand how hard it is for a guy coming back from overseas and how weird Australia is for them when they've lived in such a completely different way and the little things that will frustrate you. And uh, the mindset, look, I can't speak for everyone, the mindset I was in, but coming from, particularly from a place where um, I suppose I found you, you develop the habit of responding to any sort of aggression or or any sort of um, confrontation with aggression immediately, very quickly, and you're suddenly supposed to switch that off and dial that back uh, is very difficult. Um, you know, and I, you know, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, how, how how much I should say about it, but when you when you spent months or years in a place where you're supposed to anybody shows you aggression, you're supposed to aggressively pursue and kill or capture them to all of a sudden you're meant to be polite and say, oh, excuse me, and get out of their way. Um, and so I, I think that's there. That can be really hard. I, you're not the first person to have said it, and I think that's exactly it. We train people to be hyper-aggressive, and we, we see it in sport now. We train them to be hyper-aggressive and, and hyper-focused on the field, and then they come off and they're supposed to turn it off, and human emotions don't always do that. Yeah, look, I think you do. You see that a great example of that is with, for instance, uh, young rugby players. They're only 21-year-old men. They're very highly trained, very high testosterone, I suppose, and they're expected to go from 100% to normal man in instant. And then you wonder why they have such huge incidences in their public life when there is nothing, you know, with social media and there's nothing hidden. Um, I suppose at least for a serving person, their identity as they're serving is not a public, so they're not a public figure, so they don't suffer that public scrutiny that a yeah. professional sports player suffers, but it probably is quite a good analogy for yeah. the similarities between the two. And how old were you when you, were, when you first went in to service? I actually joined late. Um, I never had any intention of joining the military, never any interest as a child wow. um, or going up, uh, growing up or anything, but I joined the reserves when uh, I was 24. Um, I, was, I was a mechanic at the time and I wanted to do engineering at uni and wanted some pocket money to help to go through uni. Um, I was, it's a long story, but I was running a business at the time and between trying to run a business and study, I just had too much on my plate and I was really enjoying the army, so I went full time. And any regrets? Not really, no. Thank you very much, Clancy. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and Stay in the Loop with Lucy. That was an interview edited by Neil Ashworth and a big uh, shout out to him this morning to say thank you for editing those interviews that we did on the day, on Tuesday on Anzac Day at the RSL um, breakfast. Clancy touched on some key points. We train... Uh, people to turn off those emotions and then when they come back we expect them to be able to turn them on again and for the person who's left behind and at home who hasn't experienced the trauma of the person who's gone to war it's really very difficult 
to stand by and watch your partner be in that much pain. Interviews that, that I found this week from Chris May and Andrew Cullen both sat with me. Um, I, will post, I will post them up on the website so you can have a look. But um, Andrew Cullen is, is a, the gentleman I was talking about with the uniform, you know, smiling with, <clears throat> excuse me, his body armour. And how when he came back, you know, he the, one of the hardest conversations he had to have was telling his wife that he didn't want to be here anymore. And his wife was devastated because, you know, the realization that she wasn't enough and that her four children weren't enough to, to make someone want to stay. But what we don't realize is that the images of what someone has seen keep infiltrating into their normal life and that actually you're trained, your nervous system is trained for hyper, hyper, to be hypersensitive, to expect, uh, to not trust and to expect things to be around every corner. I remember, and I'm sure I have shared this on the show before, interviewing some um, gentlemen and a woman from the bomb squad um, who work here in New South Wales. Amazing people. Um, and the hardness that they have had to bring into their lives and uh, into their way of being means that they live behind this shell and so they don't walk around like we walk around every person they look at is a potential suspect every bag they see is a potential life-ending um, contraption so it it takes time to come back from that situation from that uh, hypersensitivity in our nervous system. Chris May was only 17 when he went, which actually is the same age as as, um, as the next interview we'll have, uh, which is with Philip. I'm I'm aware that at 17, I mean, I have I have three children, and uh, two of them are just beyond 17. One's just approaching, and you kind of go, I know the way you felt at 17 I know what was going on in your life to consider that that young boy is then taken and put into a situation where he's battle ready um, in Vietnam or Afghanistan or you know well uh, it beggars belief really and then as Chris May described coming back and, and being on a football pitch and having someone screaming at you in your face or niggling at you on the football field and then knowing that actually what you want to do is completely pulverize them, but you can't because you know that it's inappropriate behavior. Um, anyway, I love the way he deals with it now. What he does is he has a quiet word in their ear and, and says, you know, dude, uh, I don't know what he says, but part of it is that uh, he needs to work very hard to not react to someone behaving that way on a football pitch and hopefully bring some sense of perspective to the person who's getting so angry about what's going on on a football pitch and, and put it into perspective, allowing him to then carry on and play the game. And very often, he says, it ends with, you know, a great understanding between teammates and between teams and um, they can move on and play well. So now we're going to change it ever so slightly from, from that to talking about um, Vietnam. Serving in Vietnam when they went uh, was just a whole different kettle of fish to World War One or World War Two. A lot of the um, World War One and World War Two veterans didn't see Vietnam as being a real war. Uh, the, there was a huge amount of controversy about them going and uh, they were asked to come back under cover of darkness. They were um, smuggled back in um, very often into jobs where the bosses weren't supporters of the Vietnam War, so you didn't get any support there. A lack of understanding about what PTSD was, about what Agent Orange would do to the body. This is Philip. Philip served in the Navy in Borneo and Vietnam, and uh, this is his story from the Anzac Day service on Triple H 100.1 FM and Stay in the Loop with Lucy. I'm with Philip now. Welcome, Philip. Can you tell me a little bit about your history, where you've served, and what you, what, where you're here from today? Yeah, but I've um, joined the Navy in 1965, 
at the tender age of 17 years and four days. Wow. Uh, and by August that year, I ended up on my way to Borneo, Vietnam on HMA's Candida. And for a good old country boy that lived in the outback and worked on a station chasing cows and sheep, it was a bit of a shock to the system that there was even, we were even in conflict with anyone in the world. 17 years old. Mm-hmm from the country, which is nowhere near the water, and then taking a job on the water. Well, I couldn't even swim. It took me six weeks to pass my swimming test before I get it for a first leave. So it was a pretty good incentive. Wow. So when you landed, were you actually on the ground and, and battling on the ground or Most just Most of the time sea? we were on, on the ship, but I did spend uh, two weeks with the British Army in North Borneo uh, during, during the Indonesian confrontation which a lot of people are not really aware of. Um, there was a conflict between um, Indonesia and the new emerging state of Malaysia. Uh, and they didn't want uh, Malaya to actually join, join that co- coalition. Uh, in the end, Singapore actually pulled out of the coalition and only became Borneo and Malaya, the state of Malaysia. What did you notice the difference was coming back from Borneo and coming back from Vietnam? Was there a difference in how you were welcomed back? Yep. I, my first Anzac Day in 1966, I only had my one, one ribbon at the time, which is the, uh, the General Service Medal, which was a British award, uh, with the, the bars, Borneo and Vietnam. I went to the um, Town Hall Hotel to have a beer, full, full uniform. And while I was sitting there, two old fellows said to me, um, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I've come to march on Anzac Day. And basically told me, piss off and come back when you've been to a real war. Wow. But, and that, to a degree, was a, a big problem right through uh, for all those coming back from Vietnam. That um, the old World War II diggers didn't feel that um, we'd been in any sort of real conflict. So the and diggers... I believe th- that also the very, very similar thing happened to the Second World War War veterans from the First World War veterans. So the veterans, the older veterans, didn't think that the young veterans had experienced what they'd experienced, that it had been worse for for them? Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, And as a result of that, I never marched until my second year in the police force when I had been standing up at Bridge Street directing traffic and all the Vietnam vets used to hang hang around the the fountain up there and they all walked up to me doing traffic and they said, why aren't you marching? I said, well, and I told them and they're going off. And that's from that date, from 1982, I've marched every year. Oh, we're honoured to have you marching here and I'm I'm honoured to be interviewing you. What would you say to young people now who you see come back from some of the wars? Wars change very different. It's very different now. And we're at the risk of going to war again, um, probably more than we've ever been before. What would you? What would your guidance be with all the experience that you've had? <clears throat> Pardon me. I think the saddest part about it all is that um, we... we War, unfortunately, when you, when you study history, has been an ongoing thing. What's happening at the moment is war by stealth, which is worry, worrying me more than actual physical com- combat. Um, we've, we've slowly eroding of our, of our rights um, and um, our freedom. Like today, like to, to think today that we have to have water barriers and huge police presence to celebrate uh, one of our premier days for veterans in Australia um, really, really saddens me. I agree. And it so much is done, it becomes impersonal, doesn't it? And then the anger is taken out very personally. Yes, I, to a degree. Um, I think what we all need to do, I think, to a degree, is, is stand back for a minute and just have a look and realise what the veterans before myself and before me and concurrently today um, put their lives on the line to give us freedom. And the more I see at the moment is more and more of our freedoms are being eroded. And we, um, you know, you can't even walk into public building places these days without being searched. And having been in uh, UK during the 70s, 
during the troubles with Ireland, um, you know, everybody was a criminal, and look, you, you couldn't even look at a someone left their, their briefcase sitting on the table there and walked walked over to get a beer, like you clear the bar, like, and it's and sadly to a degree that this is something that's starting to happen in Australia. Thank you very much, Philip. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you telling us about Borneo because I don't think it's something that we know enough about. So thank you very much. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Uh, What I loved about what Philip just shared there. So Philip was... um, uh, went off at 17. Um, He went to serve in Vietnam and Borneo. Um, He talked about the judgment that he received from other ex-serving servicemen because they didn't think that he'd served in the same way that he had done. And I, I witnessed another example of this in the week where someone tried to broaden our awareness that you know world war one world war two as we discovered with the people that we saw vietnam um borneo afghanistan you know none of it is any different one person who made the mistake of perhaps highlighting the fact that it isn't any different and we're still going and we still haven't learned and we are still having post-traumatic stress disorder experience in other areas of the world was Yasmin Abdel Magid. Now, she wrote in a Facebook post, I believe, lest we forget, Manus, Nauru, Syria, Palestine, dot, 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 asking us to really consider, you know, a larger picture. I don't think that that's such a bad thing. But the hate that she got from posting that, um, it, I, you can't, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm speechless because for me, I think you can have a disagreement about what someone writes and what someone says, but the vitriol, the nastiness, the words that come out, and all I can consider in bringing some understanding to it is that maybe some of these people have post-traumatic stress and someone trying to make it about something bigger and a bigger world is hard for them because they haven't actually come to terms with them things themselves and therefore they they erupt just as you know Chris was talking about on the football pitch they erupt they can't even Clancy was mentioning it, they can't sort of separate the two and so it becomes a personal insult to them and that's why the response is so vitriolic. What I would question and what I would ask that we be aware of and that we do not stand for is how quickly it gets out of control, how the insults are about her being um, sexually assaulted about what they're going to do to her, about throwing her out of the country, about her being un-Australian. Oh, man, it just seems to me that we just go round and round in circles. Um, you know, I, I just... It, it was really painful to read the racism and the misogyny uh, and the vicious attacks that were put on this this woman who said something that she genuinely was asking us to consider the bigger picture. I question, I wonder if it had been different if it was a man, if it was this, if it was that. Um, I don't know. I kind of just hope that we grow up and actually stop um, getting personal and making personal attacks in that way and dealing with our um, issues in such a public and vicious way. I really do because I don't think that we do anyone any good. I don't think we do the servicemen who are returning any good um, or the commentators. Uh, and the perhaps there's going to be a huge amount of post-traumatic stress for her as a journalist who we are paying to speak up, to speak out, to expand our horizons. And then the tirade of abuse that you get as a journalist, um, what's with that, you know, really... We haven't learned anything. William Roberts is another guest that we interviewed. 
who takes us back to Vietnam. Now, he was more accepted because he was already in the army. He didn't just join to go and fight in Vietnam. And this is where I wanted to show the difference in how we approach what we believe is worthy or unworthy of our understanding. Um, I, I won't say any more. Just listen to the way William Roberts talks about his experience and, and actually how he has turned it to be something that he can actually support others with, even though it wasn't necessarily what he experienced when he got back. Without further ado, William Roberts on Triple H 100.1 FM. <laughs> I'm sitting here with William Roberts, OAM, JP, welcome. Um, what has been your part that you've played today? Uh, well, I, I laid a reef on behalf of the Vietnam Veterans Peacekeepers and Peacemakers Association of Australia. Um, initially, we're Vietnam Veterans of Australia, but because we, we do pension work and we help with welfare and pension uh, for everybody, from all wars and conflicts and peacekeeping uh, missions, and um, uh, we changed our name to Vietnam Veterans Peacekeepers Peacemakers to reflect what we're doing. So. Did, well, the, the person that I spoke to just before was talking about how difficult it was to come home from that war because you come home under the cover of darkness, you're not welcomed back into the country. Is that something that you've had to work very hard to change? Well, I was a regular soldier. Uh, I went to Malay and Borneo first during the Indonesian confrontation, and then Vietnam 68-69. Uh, I came back by uh, ship on the Sydney, but I'm aware a lot of my friends uh, who came back under the cover of darkness by plane gone home and several weeks later had to go back to work without any counselling or debriefing into a, a pretty hostile um, uh, environment where, where their former employee, uh, friends and employers, most of them who didn't agree with the war would give them a hard time. Mm -hmm. So they had to adapt. A lot of them uh, suffered a lot of mental illnesses because of it, uh, as we all did. Um, so it was very tough for them. It wasn't as tough for me because as I was a regular soldier and I got uh, treated a little bit better, uh, even though I, I, was, uh, I did serve in Vietnam. So uh, I know how they feel and I'm still dealing with people. I've been a pensions officer with, with the association for 24 years. I'm the senior vice president. And I come across these folks all the time who want nothing to do with the RSLs because of the way they were treated. Um, and they don't go to the reunions or the, the marches because of how they were treated, and I keep telling them that um, it wasn't their mates, um, their comrades that treated them badly, and they're the ones that are going to miss them at these functions and these uh, reunions. Uh, they shouldn't take it out on their friends, take it out on the government, uh, etc. but don't take it out on their friends. And a lot of them actually did start going to the reunions and to Anzac Day because all I said to them was, um, you know, um, they only want to see you once a year, if nothing else, you know, and they're your mates, and, you know, you, you shouldn't deprive them of that, that opportunity. And, and I think that a lot of them told me they did um, turn up at those functions and they felt good, good about it. And I said, that's all. If you, don't, if you go once and you don't like it, well, then don't go again. So don't take it out um, on, on your mates, but take it out the government. There's something about getting back together that's supportive for each other, isn't it? That you actually know that you've had a shared experience. Yeah. Just yeah. supporting each other in that shared yeah. experience. We all know how we felt. Those who come to me and I, and, they, and I said, I know exactly how you feel because I've been there, done that. So I'm not talking, you know, out, out, out of shop. I said, I do know what, how you feel. A lot of them relax then because they know that I understand. And when I'm helping them with a, a pension or whatever, they open up with me because they can trust me and they talk to me like we were still back in the army. In fact, I had one comment many years ago, the black said, I've never been spoken to like that, for that since the army, so it felt good because I was talking to them in army terms and they none of this bureaucratic official, uh, you know, way of dealing with, uh, with veterans. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for sharing your story with us today.
Yes, indeed. These um, battle scars by Guy Sebastian there. I love that song because it talks about us being at war with love. And essentially, that's what we're asking people to do, isn't it? Um, you can't be, you can't, you can't go to war and understand. Um, you can't take that love of humanity with you. You have to shut down those emotions and shut down those feelings. And that's the dilemma, the tension that is constantly uh, at play. Just before the break, you heard from um, Bill Roberts. If you'd like to hear more from him, Neil did a really great interview with him on Street Beat on Friday. So I will put the, the link to that up because obviously he's looking after... Um, uh, Vietnam veterans, peacemakers and uh, peacekeepers. He, <clears throat> excuse me, he's the pensions officer there. Uh, Neil really has extended the conversation beyond what we could have done on the day. I'm going to play you one more interview um, from Philip Chinquan. And then I, we're going to actually take a slightly different tack and start talking to some of the women. Uh, without further ado, Triple H 100.1 FM and Philip Chin Kwan from Anzac Day. I'm sitting here with Smitty, a.k.a. Philip Chin Kwan. Welcome to Triple H 100.1 FM. Thank you very much. Sir. Can you tell me about um, what today has meant for you, first of all? Um, to me, it was a very moving experience because I haven't done many of these in, since the war. I came home in 71. And I think this is only my fourth or fifth dawn service. Um, in the past, I think we all went through it. Um, initially, when we came home, we weren't welcomed by RSL. We weren't welcome to participate in ANZAC. So we felt ostracised, so we sort of kept to ourselves. And I think this only increased our post-traumatic, which, again, we never knew we had, which developed over time, long time. So you went to the Vietnam War? Can you tell me about, were you conscripted or was that voluntary? Yeah, I was conscription, uh, national serviceman, went in at 20 and uh, nine months after I, I finished my training, I was in Vietnam. Um, I was in two separate units at headquarters at Nui Dat. The first unit was called D&E, Defence and Employment. Our illustrious leader was one Lieutenant Peter Cosgrove at the time. Um, our unit had the highest kill rate of any operational platoon in Vietnam at the time. Uh, in 69, we lost two members of our unit and we killed 44 enemy. Uh, Peter Kaisgrove, in his first action with d after he left Nine Road, who had gone home before him, uh, he was in action in a, against uh, enemy troops in a, a bunker system. Five were found dead. Peter killed three. Um, I was with that unit for about two months. The funny thing is when I arrived at the unit, the commanding officer, the major, asked me if I would be the new forward scout as the, one of the four scouts was going home soon. On the proviso that I wear black pyjamas, wear a straw helmet, helmet and carry an AK-47. He did ask me pro previous to that, that description whether I spoke Chinese or Vietnamese because my surname Chin Quan is coincidentally a Vietnamese name. Right. means nine districts. I was a lance corporal in the South Vietnamese regular army, single stripe as a staff sergeant. And it's from the staff sergeant ranks that they draw their interpreters and translators to speak English and of course Vietnamese and Chinese. So they just assumed I might have been Vietnamese. And were they correct or incorrect? Pardon? Could you? No, um, <laughs> born and raised in Australia, I lost my Cantonese uh, language and um, only spoke English. Um, when I used to go on leave in Bung Tao, uh, the thing that used to give me away was after too many bourbons, I would start singing Walsing Matilda. Oh, classic. Uh, after two months in DNA, I was redeployed to another unit called First Psychological Operations Unit, Psy Warfare Unit. Um, I was part of a ground team group where we used to go in and live amongst the village and hamlets and um, we would question the locals and sift out the intelligence information about enemy activity and we're also required to interrogate prisoners caught in, in the general area. Um, so I was, after 12 months I, was, I came home 
Um, and you were saying when you came home it was really difficult because no one welcomed you home. I think most of the Vietnam veterans went through the same thing, though we never sort of sat down and talked about it. Yeah. We, we knew about it after a period of time when, when we started talking to each other, but we weren't very welcome. We were all brought home at night on a night flight, so when we arrived in country, there weren't, weren't any photographers or reporters to meet us at the airports. We sort of, sort of snuck back into the country under the veil of night time. Um, I was never involved in Anzac traditions in those 15, 20 years after because basically the RSL, who were the so-called representatives of the veteran community, didn't welcome us and they didn't allow us to join in or accept us into the march, so we never did. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate you being here and everything that you contributed to get here today. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. It's been a pleasure. Once again, um, another returning serviceman who, who struggled. So he got back in 1971 and uh, 19, sorry, 2017 was only his second Anzac Day service. That's a, that's a lot of, um, that's a lot of pain of not wanting, not knowing that you could be involved and get some support from, from the work that the sub-branches have been doing in order to support returning servicemen. And I'm really pleased to see that changing now. And we, in the last couple of years that I've been interviewing there, we've we really, we have met people from other um, wars that are, are finding themselves um, supported which is really great. Uh, so you are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. We're going to have a little bit more music now. And then we, when we come back, I'm going to tell you all about the Women's Auxiliary. And um, you're going to meet Jenny, who has just started up the Hornsby branch of the Women's Auxiliary and is now on a particular project, which I'll leave her to tell you about. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. We are doing an Anzac Day PTSD show today and I hope that you have enjoyed listening to the insights that we brought you from our Anzac Day interviews after the service, after the live service. Um, an amazing... I, I, I'm humbled every time I listen to those interviews. I just... I'm so grateful that they've taken the time to talk to us, to me, um, and via me to all of you. And I um, I really hope that I get to do a longer, more in-depth conversation with them all because I think we scratched the surface of our understanding and what we potentially could learn from these amazing men who just give us a glimpse into what it was like to, to come back and to rebuild their lives. One of the groups that would know better than anybody else what it's like to be on the receiving end of men coming back from war are the women and the uh, the mothers, the widows, the um, sisters, the daughters, the aunts of men who served in the Imperial Forces in the First World War. They started the Australian Imperial Service of, of Women's Auxiliary um, and it was started at the end of the First World War um, to raise money for the welfare of the men and women who served and their widows and families. We had a branch here up in um, Hornsby and then it was closed down and just in the last couple of years, a woman called Jenny came on the scene who had um, had an agreement with her mother-in-law that there was something that she needed to do. I'm going to, without further ado, pass you on to the beautiful Jenny and let her describe um, the work that she does. And I'll tell you a little bit more afterwards. Okay, I'm sitting here with Jenny. Jenny is uh, one of the females. In fact, we spoke about Jenny, right? When we were when they were laying the wreaths, we mentioned you when you went up to uh, to lay a wreath. Can you share with me who you're representing today? I'm representing the Women's Auxiliary from Hornsby. Um, they closed 
in 2005 and I reopened it up last year. So tell me about the women women's auxiliary. What did they do? Where you know they've obviously been closed for a very long time. What did they do before they closed? We do fundraising for the ex-service personnel, and um, and at the moment we're got involved with the um, affected games, um, doing quilts and laundry bags to give to the Victor's Games for the personnel next year. So when Prince Harry comes out. You'll be there ready and waiting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me, how many? How did you uh, re-inspire women to be able to, because you've got 20 women who've started this up again. How did you re-inspire them that, that this was something worth doing? With all the other things that they could be working on. We do a lot of fundraising, like doing um, Mother's Day and... Uh, tables with stuff on, you know, bits and yep. pieces and all that on it as well. So, And was it your husband that served? Because you're wearing an awful lot of badges today. <laughs> yeah, my husband served in Vietnam. And what, is he here? Is he present? No, he's gone into the marching town. Okay, so um, that's his dad's what was medal. it like coming back? What was he like when he came back from Vietnam? Not very good. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of them weren't. And this is, I think, we don't get your side of the story very much, what it was like being the, the woman who had sent off one man and another man came back, and yet you, you loved them, so you're, they're still in there. It's just actually trying to find them. Yeah, but um, I remarried Graham. It was my second marriage to okay. Graham, and it was his second marriage. Okay. But it's taken a long time for him to to recover yeah. and he's still recovering now so yeah. but um, it's it does take a lot to do and I don't know if you realise that we have homeless soldiers too. Yes this is what we're realising is that the trauma of what they've experienced some of them actually would reject a home as opposed to or, or have lost everything so that they now can't afford a home. Yeah, well, now with the Women's Accelerate and all that as well, we're actually um, making quilts for them to, so when they actually go into like a one-bedroom unit or something, yeah. we're, we're doing that. There's about 3,000 here in New South Wales. I believe that's what the breakfast money went to today for um, servicemen who, who are, are homeless as well. Yep, yeah, that's... Correct. Yeah. And <laughs> yep. um, so, who else were you sitting with at your table that we just pulled you away from? Oh, that's a, one of the other ladies that was in the auxiliary as well. So, yeah. But we're doing well. It's only been, what, six months since we've been rejoined up again. So. And does Hornsby RSL support you? The sub branch? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they do very well. They're absolutely marvellous. And we've been doing um, badges with them as well this year. So, it was our first one this year. But we did poppies last year with them as well so yeah and the other women who are part of your um your auxiliary group with you what do they do what are the where, what what's their world are they all um do they all have ex-servicemen in their families uh no i think there's only a couple of us there's about three four of us yeah that are their husbands are in the other and the other ladies are all just volunteers that came along and said, yeah, they'll join, so, which is really good, so, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, how people come together to work for community, and, you know, when you've got a, when you've got a story, like you've got a partner, or you've been on the receiving end, or um, you know someone who's homeless, then there is a reason. But when people come just because they know that they want to help, there's something great about bringing those two groups together because something powerful clearly happens as, it, as is, you know, you're able to open something that's been closed for a long time. Yes, yes, it's, it takes a long time, but, you know, it's, my mother-in-law, she was in the, been in the army, she was one of the communication up in New South Wales. Wow. Uh, up in Newcastle. Yeah. And in the Second World War, so yeah, and she came along and she got me into the auxiliary as well. But yeah, it's, just, it's been really good. I've enjoyed it. I've had a ball. And I've, where um, is she now? 
Oh, she passed away. Well, in in loving memory. Yeah, there she you was are. ninety-four. Well, she did very well then. She did she? very well. Yeah, she did very well. And and in her memory, you're able to to start it up. She'd be well, super proud. Well, that was her last words that she was said it? before she passed away. She said, "I hope Fawns will get up and running again." And I actually pushed myself to do it. So yeah, so it's up and running again now. Congratulations, thank Jenny. Well much. done, and thank you very much for giving us an interview thank to tell you. our listeners about it. Thank you very much. If thank they you. want to get involved, how can they get in touch with you? Well, they can ring, uh, speak to Hornsby RSL and um, leave a message there, and it can get passed on to us. Wonderful. And then you'll call them back. Thank you, Jenny. Everyone call. Thank you very much. Beautiful, the lovely Jenny. Um, she was so nervous to be interviewed, and yet it, it what she offered was so um was so beautiful and so valuable uh, to understand that um there isn't an organisation you can join to raise funds, and just every little bit counts. So they um uh, they are um, getting ready for the Invictus Games next year, which is happening in Sydney from the 18th to the 29th of October. 2018, which is next year. Prince Harry founded the Invictus Games after a visit to the US Warrior Games held in Colorado in 2013. And he vowed to take the idea and launch a similar event in the UK. And after seeing the impact sport could have on wounded, injured and sick servicemen and women in their recovery. Um, so that took place in London in 2014 at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, which was obviously the site of the 2012 Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. Um, there were over 400 competitors from 13 countries, um, including US, Australia, Canada, France, Afghanistan. So in this one, we have so far 17 nations to compete over 12 days of competition, 500 competitors so far across 11 different adaptive sports and uh, more than a thousand friends and family taking part. So um, that, if you want to hear more about that, just let me know or go to their website. I'll put the details up on um, the Stay in the Loop with Lucy webpage afterwards when I do the blog. Um, but otherwise, you can get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch. Um, one last interview, and we cannot go without this last interview, is to say an enormous thank you to the RSL who host the um, Anzac Day breakfast each year. Um, they, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll let them talk about it because they have to get this ready in the morning. We're all up at, say, three o'clock to, to manage the dawn service. Then they have to close and over an hour turn and clean the club and turn it around for the general opening at 10 o'clock. So let me pass you over to Kate and Joanne sharing with us the teamwork and the amount of work that goes into sorting out an event like this. Without further ado, on Triple H 100.1 FM, Joanne and Kate from Hornsby RSL. I'm with Joanne and Kate, who have organised the event up here in uh, the Hornsby RSL. Welcome. Welcome. Hello. How are you? <laughs> so, Joanne, what's your role here? I'm the event coordinator. And um, how long have you been planning to today? Oh, uh, it's a year in, in um, planning, in okay. preparation. We have two large meetings, which involve the sub-branch and the club, and the uh, club president and um, board of directors and the management. Um, we look at many different aspects about the event, um, how to event manage it safely and securely, and think of the community. Can I check, do you organise what goes on inside the club and outside the club, or no, just inside just the inside. club? just inside. So the sub organise uh, the... Um, the dawn service um, with the help of the police st john's ambulance and you know quite a lot of community groups are involved in the organization of the dawn service and then the club fund a breakfast so that uh, i 
think they spend around 1850 per person wow. and we usually cater for about 1500 people so it's quite a big expense to the club um, we have introduced um, ticket sales um, which all ticket sales and proceeds go to homes for heroes and homes for heroes are returned servicemen um, that are in trouble suffering yeah. from depression and, and yeah. can't look after themselves and they need to be home so that five dollars is all a pure donation to homes for heroes and the club funds the breakfasts for the community and we've been doing it i've been here for 10 years so they've been doing this breakfast um oh for years and years and years i think it was run by the women's auxiliary and then um the club took over the running of it since i've been here anyway for the past 10 years well it's certainly very welcome after standing outside for three hours in the cold it's very lovely to come in and, and enjoy a breakfast Kate, what have you done in the lead up for today so i've probably coordinated um, a lot of the um, catering staff like um all the front of house staff um, and um, organised um, the setting up of all the showroom um, and all our other areas, like the cafe and the um, courtyard area, and also we um, our three function rooms downstairs. Um, so yeah, so we've had to yeah roll cutlery, um, set up the ten coffee stations, um, yeah, all that sort of thing. Stop taking, Stop ta yeah. ordering. Yeah. It's amazing how much goes in that we wouldn't necessarily consider for an event this size. And we just had a, an announcement that said, you know, we need to be out by 8.30 because the club opens at 9.30. That's an hour turnaround to start all over again. Yes, that's right. It's one of the busiest days for the club in trading. Um, but just one thing about the breakfast. Um, we run minimal staff at the breakfast and we rely on the community groups. So it couldn't be done without the SES, the Rural Bushfire, service, St John's Ambulance, um, all of our sub clubs. So the club has many little sporting clubs that belong to our club. So we have um, the swimming club called the Frogs and the Hockey Girls and the Soccer Club. And so they all come together and volunteer their time for the breakfast to service and clear. And one um, big part of the community, the Scouts and the Girl Guides, they come in droves and help us clear away like a little army. So we couldn't do this breakfast without the help of all of our community so it is really even though the club pays for it it's a community run event and I think everyone looks forward to it every year I mean all those groups we all get together have a little mini meeting and then yeah we produce this great event so I think that's important isn't it to be able to show the community how you can give back and teaching them very young that it's in the simple things, like rolling the cutlery. And I, I think it's a day for younger people to sort of learn about, you know, getting in there and helping and working hard service. and service, like what the men and women have yeah. done for us. So I think, um, I think that's why it's always such a successful day. Well, can I say thank you on behalf of Joe Public, which would be me now, <laughs> Josephine Public, and thank you, uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Kate, and thank you, Joanne. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You see how we couldn't really go beyond actually having that interview before the end of the show because they thanked all the people that really come together to make that event what it is. Now, um, I'm coming to the end of the show, so I'm going to wrap up. But, you know, before I do, next year is a, a big year when we talk about... Um, you know, what Anzac Day might hold next year. Next year is 100 years since the end of the First World War. So I suspect that what we're going to have is um, a lot of a lot of love and a lot of uh, coming together and a lot of um, tender commemorations. So I, I hope that we are very much in there. I'm sure Neil has a plan for us and count me in. Um, the Invictus Games will be in, at the end of the year. So it's not, we, I just think that let's not make it just, you know, two events in the year or three events in the year. Let's just uh, change our ways so we can really celebrate something very different uh, and not just uh, trying to pretend we're not at war somewhere or other around the world. Let's come back to choosing to be the change we want to see in the world. And regardless, as I say every week, 
remember that whatever has or is happening in your life, you are and will always be you and you are amazing. And that place is still inside you regardless of the experiences that you have had in your life. The key is to reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so that you can recognize when your body is trying to tell you something is not quite right and then seek the support with the appropriate support service, be that a mental or physical health service. Look for that support in the community. It is there. And I will have links to all of those on the uh, Stay in the Loop with Lucy website along with the podcast of this show by the end of the day. Remember, if you want to get updates, then like the Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page because I will post the link for the show when it's ready up there. And if you need um, some direction of how to get that, go to the Triple H Stay in the Loop with Lucy program page and you'll find it there. I do hope you'll make an appointment to listen to me next week, next Sunday. I am just waiting for confirmation, but I believe I have a nurse who worked at... um, at one of the Syrian refugee camps who's going to just uh, talk to us a little bit about um, what it's like working around people who potentially have um, a, a, something that's going to stay with them uh, for the rest of their lives um, being on the receiving end of a war. Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you, connect to the people in our community, the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be loved, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.